Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Into the week of October 16th, the 19th Sunday after Pentecost. We are rolling right along in ordinary time. I hope everybody is doing well. And this Sunday we are in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, starting in verse 1. Jesus was telling them a parable about their need to pray continuously and to not be discouraged. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected people. In that city there was a widow who kept coming to him, asking, Give me justice in this case against my adversary. For a while he refused, but finally said to himself, I don't fear God or respect people, but I will give this widow justice because she keeps bothering me. Otherwise, there will be no end to her coming here and embarrassing me. The Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. Won't God provide justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? Will will he be slow to help them? I tell you, he will give them justice quickly. But when the human one comes, will he find faithfulness on earth? All right. So we have, we've talked about this passage before. It's the lectionary. I think last time we talked about this, we talked about how the widow's pleas for justice, uh, in this case against the judge, how she keeps uh, going to, uh, quote, bother the judge. And uh, we we particularly looked at this phrase um, when the judge says, uh, there will be no end to her coming here and embarrassing me. And I found that phrase to be really interesting last time, this uh, coming here to embarrass me. Uh, so if we want to find links to that, we can uh, we can do that on Sunday and maybe talk about that. But I wanted to kind of look at this passage uh, from a variety of, of different angles, uh, just kind of where my head's at, what I'm thinking about this week in terms of this particular text. I think this is... I don't know. I mean, I think all parables uh, are pretty difficult to understand, but to me, this is one of the more difficult parables uh, to think about. Uh, People have very obviously wrongly used this text to justify a lot of uh, really bad theology that treats God uh, like the judge or like a genie, uh, where your level of faith equates to how much you ask God for or if you keep bothering God or uh, some version of uh, thinking about a God who rewards good behavior as all sort of tied into ideas that uh, have roots in this particular parable and other places too. But in this particular, I've, I've tried to talk about this uh, for many years, uh, this combat this Santa Claus view of God. Um, but it is an incredibly persistent theology, whether it's conscious or not. So uh, so some of the questions that I think this parable forces us to wrestle with and to consider, and hopefully we can get into these on Sunday, is this dynamic of Jesus talking about this uh, this parable in the context of teaching them how to pray. The beginning of this text says, uh, he tells them a parable about their need to pray continuously and to not be discouraged. So that's how the author of the Gospel, Luke, sets up, frames this particular parable. But some of the questions that I think this parable and the way that this parable has been probably wrongly interpreted uh, forces us to ask questions like, okay, what is God actually like? <laughs> okay, if we, if we don't think God is like a unjust judge or even a a good judge, right? Because I think that's the extrapolation that most people make is there's a bad judge and God's a good judge. But if we don't, if we don't actually think of God in, the, in those, that particular way, then what 
is God actually like? Uh, two, what is prayer? <laughs> what, what is the purpose of praying? I think this is a great question that is worth sort of digging around in. Um, and then maybe the, the third question that I'm thinking of is, how do we embody a kind of persistence like this widow um, in our efforts to pursue justice and the flourishing of life amid many injustices that we witness today. Uh, I think it's maybe somewhat helpful if we think, uh, if we remind ourselves that the context of this parable is in Luke's gospel. This parable only shows up in Luke's gospel, and you know that Luke's gospel communicates uh, a message about God's ultimate concern, which is liberation for the poor and the oppressed from positions of vulnerability in a society by restoring the dignity of all and blessing to those who are particularly on the under, underside of power. So when we come across this parable of a persistent widow seeking justice at the end of Luke's gospel or towards the end of Luke's gospel, we, we know that what Jesus has established to this point is a vision of the kingdom of God that is an active movement uh, for justice. Recently, my, my dad asked me about the Cornell West quote that we talk about all the time, justice is what love looks like in public. And he, he asked a great question. He said, specifically, what do you mean when you say justice? And I think this is a point of clarity if we haven't talked about it before. It's a, a great question. And I think there can be a variety of different ways that we answer the question of what, is, what do we mean when we say justice? Uh, today, what do we mean from uh, like a biblical perspective? Um, but I think there's a way that we can think about it that both has a biblical concept of justice and what we, how we might see that working out in a variety of different ways today. Like, let's ju just use the example of the widow in the Bible. Throughout the Hebrew scriptures, widows were known uh, to be powerless and vulnerable in society. And, and the Bible commands special care for them on many occasions. And so justice can be understood, I think, broadly as protecting those vulnerable to the pressures of society and unjust systems that value some over others. For, for example, in Deuteronomy, there's the command, quote, you shall not pervert justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment and pledge. So we see justice is, is broadly God's movement towards harmony, equity, and the flourishing of life. Uh, Psalm 103 says, the Lord performs acts of righteousness and justice for all of those who are oppressed. And I guess I start here and I mention this to say what you probably already know, that, that God in scripture is involved in the active movement for liberation and peace in our world. And that's something that we see throughout the trajectory of the scripture and the gospel, and, and definitely in the gospel of Luke, who emphasizes the movement of liberation for the poor and powerless. So when we think about this question of, of justice and what it might symbolize for us today, we can ask ourselves, um, where are we discovering the beauty of making our lives, communities, and planet equitable? Where, where is the social action in this movement of love that fully embraces the world as it is. And in this, there's a resilient denial of the status quo of oppression, of the divine image of God that's in all things. So we see this so acutely in this figure of the widow who's, who's poor and powerless and vulnerable in society. 
and yet she has a persistence and a resiliency. Now, we've, we've established the context for uh, this particular parable that appears in Luke, and I think it gives us the opportunity to, to use this parable to dig into the question of, what is, what is God like? Uh, if God is not like the unjust judge, as Jesus says, and then I think the classic assumption is, oh, well, he's a good judge. Uh, like, is that something that we're sort of resigned to accept? Uh, we've already covered how Luke's vision of Jesus' ministry in the kingdom of God is, is liberating. But what do we do about this parable that has this odd juxtaposition of an unjust judge in God? Uh, I, it, to me, it just doesn't, it doesn't fit within the broader narrative of, of Luke's gospel and what Luke is trying to communicate about what God is like. So for me, looking at this parable in the broader context of the gospel of Luke, uh, I see this pairing of the unjust God and then the ending of this parable saying, well, like how much more will God uh, give the things that you pester God for? Like really, is that the takeaway just to like pester God because God's a, a better judge than this terrible judge who didn't respect anybody? Uh, you know, Jesus says, listen to what the unjust judge says. Won't God provide justice to his people who cry out to him day and night? So it's easy to see how people can quickly assume that this parable is about an unjust judge acting on behalf of the widow and God's a good judge, and so he'll definitely provide justice to, uh, to people who beg God day and night. So cry out to God day and night, and God will bring you justice quickly. Okay, I think there's a variety of reasons that this uh, interpretation is unsatisfying, for me at least. Uh, I think we, at least from my experience, and I think I could say, safely say from history, that this kind of classic theological framework as God as a supreme being who listens and decides to alter or not alter events in real time is completely unsatisfying and just frankly, probably untrue. Uh, we think of a no, I mean, obviously think of an, a number of atrocities and injustices that people cried out day and night for that God did not stop all of the senseless and inexplicable pain and suffering of innocent people, those who have been oppressed, uh, our own friends and family members, or maybe even us, uh, who prayed and asked God repeatedly for help or justice, that never came. How do we square history and our experience with what Jesus seems to be saying here about what God is like? I don't know, it seems like a, a fair question. Within a traditional theological framework, which might repeat Jesus' words here verbatim, without the context of the broader gospel of Luke or any kind of critical engagement, we're, we're either left with an experience of feeling abandoned by God who didn't respond to us or didn't respond to a certain injustice that we see and find in our world, or in history, um, which means that the lack of justice is either the fault of the person or the person's praying for justice, because if they didn't come, they clearly didn't have the special cocktail of faith, or 
The other option, I guess, is that God is worse than the unjust judge for not bringing justice in a clear uh, situation of oppression and injustice. All right? Um, so how do we think about what God is like in the context of this parable um, with some real critical uh, thought and engagement? And hopefully we can come out with um, a more helpful image of what we're talking about uh, on, on Sunday in, in regards to this conversation. And I know we've talked about this, uh, these, some of these ideas in different, in different contexts, maybe not through the lens of this particular parable, uh, but I think one way we can reframe our theological perspective in light of this parable is to see the widow as God. Uh, it is the widow who has persistent faith, the prayer and action for justice. What, what changes our hearts and minds when we recognize, we've often talked about um, the all-vulnerable God, that God actually embraces the experience of human vulnerability, that God is not in control as people sort of like classically imagine, like an omnipotent God being in control, but God takes on love and vulnerability in the very act of birth and creation and the ongoing movement of creation, incarnation, Jesus taking on flesh, that God's movement in justice from liberation is from the ground up. You know, as Mary's saying in, in Luke chapter one, God pulled down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. We see this theological idea throughout scripture and definitely in the gospel of Luke, that God works from the ground up. So I'm kind of curious if we can kind of flip our theological framework when it comes to um, this particular parable. And maybe, maybe another question is, does anything change for you in considering this parable to view uh, God as the widow in God's action in the world today as, as a kind of percolating persistence for justice and the well-being of all from the bottom up? And I think many of you know that for me, this traditional theological framework where God is a supreme being who sits outside of space and time, who uh, we call upon in our time of need, and, and that being either uh, grants us what we want or grants us justice or, or doesn't, uh, that theological framework just from, from early on just didn't work for me. Uh, I think when, so it forced me to rethink the biblical text. It forced me to rethink what, how I understood faith um, in those definitions that uh, I sort of grew up with. Uh, Faith is often associated in Christianity with a set of beliefs, ideas, dogmas, or I think can even be associated with a kind of willful ignorance in the, the Santa Claus view of God that may or may not come help you in your time of need. But if we suppose the widow as the archetype of the divine, in this case, faith is not something that you have to conjure or ignore history or critical thinking or ignore your experience to possess. Faith is resiliency and the persistence of love itself in the face of injustice. And I think this is what we see over and over again in the life of Jesus, particularly in the Gospel of Luke, that faith is the resiliency and persistence of love itself. And so if we see the widow as God, the figure of the divine, we see God crying out over and over and over again for justice. How might that change our understanding of God, not as a supreme being 
who is present just to listen and help or not help. And I think that brings up the question of uh, prayer and why we, why we pray. If we don't have uh, a traditional framework where, where God is this ultimate supreme being that can help us or not help us or alter the events of history or not, uh, then what is the purpose of prayer? How do, how do we pray? And I, I, reckon, I recognize that this is a lofty, lofty endeavor, and we don't really have time in a 20-minute podcast to do um, an extensive deep dive on liberation, theodicy, and prayer. Uh, but my goal is to not, not necessarily give us a systematic approach or even the right answers, but I do want to maybe offer some thoughts where we could recognize and, and just at least get the ball rolling to talk about prayer and some different theological frameworks for how we talk about addressing God prayer, a life of faith, outside of some of these traditional uh, molds. Okay, prayer. Obviously, countless ways Christians around the world have engaged in prayer for thousands of years. Uh, we've talked on several occasions uh, just about the difference between cataphatic prayer, prayer with content, apophatic prayer, prayer without content. We do both of those at, at Mission Hills in a variety of different ways. We've tried lots of methods. We practice prayer in a variety of different ways. But in context of this parable, I think this is, is really interesting. It's interesting to to look at this parable about prayer in sort of this uh, bizarre sort of theological ju- juxtaposition about the question of like, what is God like? Uh, to get us talking about some of the dynamic functions of prayer in a few ways that we might consider talking about it on Sunday. And I want to be clear and sensitive that I'm not trying to change uh, anybody's experience or, or practice of prayer. All I'm trying to do is offer a few brief thoughts from my experience that have come to mind this week as I've been thinking about this particular parable. So just a classic definition of prayer throughout Christian history has been something like the raising of one's heart and mind to God. Pretty simple definition, the raising of one's heart and mind to God. Uh, this is a close to a definition that Brother Lawrence used in his 17th century book, The Practice, The Presence of God, which I know many of you have read. Uh, He writes in that book this, lift up your heart to him during meals and in company. The least little remembrance will always be pleasing to him. One need not cry very loudly. He is nearer than we think. Sorry for the male-dominated language there. Um, But you get the idea that uh, there's this idea of, throughout Christian history, of prayer being something like lifting one's heart in mind to God. Uh, I was trying to think of, for me, like how, how would I define prayer broadly at this point in time? And I'm, I'm not trying to sound uh, super spiritual or, or lofty. I just wanted to define, for me, what prayer broadly means for me at this point in time. Uh, and I think broadly, it's cultivating a loving connection with the divine ultimate mystery in all of creation. Cultivating a loving connection with divine, ultimate mystery, in all of creation. So I'm curious, how, how would you define prayer right now? If prayer is something like cultivating this loving connection with ultimate mystery in all of creation, what do we do? What, is that, what does that look like? And uh, just to break my definition down a little bit, I, I say ultimate mystery 
just in thinking about uh, something that Thomas Keating wrote and has said in a variety of different contexts, but he writes this, whatever we say about God is more unlike God than saying nothing. If we do say something, it can only be a pointer toward the mystery that cannot be articulated in words. All that words can do is point in the direction of mystery. So talking about prayer in this way reminds me of our conversations on the greatest commandment, which we've talked about is sort of the grounding of a life of faith, to love God, to love your neighbor as yourself. Any, for me at least, any method of prayer, meditation, contemplation, and work in this space is an expression of loving God, cultivating a connection with both mystery and our material reality. And I think for me at this point in time, like those two are key. The recognition of mystery and the pursuit of justice in well-being in our material reality. I often use the phrase, the flourishing of life in our material reality. And I think both um, have to go together. Uh, if the widow is the image of God, it is through her vulnerability and her pleas for justice that God's kingdom is cultivated here and now. That the, the prayer is the movement of justice and liberation itself. And seeing this as God's work in the world from the bottom up, it just gives me an entirely different perspective on how we, how we think about prayer, what our expectations are uh, for life and justice, what our expectations are uh, in a life of faith, in a community. Uh, because in this understanding, prayer, it's, uh, it's not something we have to muster the strength for, right? It's, it's God's ongoing movement of love and justice that we can connect to in many different ways. So if prayer is not something we have to, it's not like we set our, our watches and we're like, all right, it's prayer time. Obviously, that is a form of prayer that people have done for hundreds of years, but that is just one form or method of prayer, right? But if we see prayer as God's ongoing movement for love and justice, then we can connect or tap into that in so many different ways. This is why we often talk about active prayer, which can be a protest for human rights, it could be working in the garden, it can be a campaign for climate justice. Uh, the Benedictines for centuries have developed aura and labora, work and prayer that go together, recognizing that there's an important interplay between what we consider prayer and work, that these things, uh, that they, that they, those lines blur as we work and pray. We do this, uh, we can do this together, we can do this in private, uh, but it's joining the ongoing work of liberation and love in our world. So we, we can expand the definition in our per per perspective of prayer and its intention way beyond just asking the sky Santa Claus God for things we want. And if we just bother him enough, he'll, we'll get eventually what we want. Um, that's such a, reduc a reductionistic view of of God and theology and God's work in the world. And so even when we think about prayer, I hope we, if we sort of like talk through this and reframe what we think about this, there's less of a need to even make the distinction of what we consider prayer and not prayer. Because we see all of life as sacred, we see all of our work as holy, uh, and we can acknowledge that uh, our own being with gratitude, created in the image of God, here and now, even this recognition can be a foundational prayer to recognize that my life and breath created in the image of God. This is a foundation of prayer to just simply be. 
You know, we can think about prayers of uh, detachment, like Meister Eckhart spoke of, and then prayers that are deeply invested in the material reality and liberation and restoration of our planet. They, you need both of those, the attachment, the detachment. And there's something powerful about seeing prayer as kind of like postures that embrace and enhance each other um, for love and for justice. All right, uh, let me try to wrap this up. So in an interview with NPR, uh, writer Anne Lamott, she describes prayer like this. It's sort of like blinking your eyes open, like in The Wizard of Oz when Dorothy lands in Oz and the movie goes from black and white to color. It's like having a new pair of glasses and you say, wow. So uh, I look forward to our conversation on Sunday. I'm going to leave it there for today. And as always, as we approach this week, may we love God, embrace beauty, and live life to the fullest. Be well.